0: Hey, Body to Burial listeners, Mariah here, and I've got a new obsession I can't wait to share with you, Strictly Stalking. Strictly Stalking is a weekly true crime podcast exploring true stalking stories directly from the survivors. With over 143 episodes currently streaming, you'll have plenty to binge. So take a listen to the trailer and check out the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe.
1: And I'm Jake Deptula.
0: We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from podcast one.
1: Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words.
0: Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know?
1: We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked.
0: So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown
1: crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Body to Burial. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We're just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. This is Body to Burial. All right. So today we've got a real science-y one and I'm excited. I think there's like a lot of stuff that we think we know about it that we don't really understand. Um, I think this is like one of the ones that like based on television, like you think that it's like a very easy, quick and dirty process. And I feel like it's going to be way more complicated, obviously, because it's real life, not television. Um, But we are talking to Tiffany, who is a forensic DNA expert.
1: What's that? Like, um, because I'm thinking about Ah, oh, Jamie, where we were talking about, let me think, hold on, my brain. Um, where we asked him a question about if you can tell whose blood's whose. So is that kind of, yeah. is that, is that what it is? Like where she could tell if it's my blood or your blood. Again, I think,
0: you know, historically, I'm usually incorrect when I assume what I think they do. Uh, but yeah, in Mariah's brain, That's what she does. Like, I think that they work to retrieve DNA from like blood stains, saliva, skin cells, hair, and then try to find a match. Okay. Again, we'll get Tiffany to clarify that within the first 30 seconds, because I'm usually wrong. But I think that that's what it is. So I think they come to the crime scene, they get the blood samples. Maybe like the skin cells under the fingernails or whatever, you know, and um, try to see if they have a hit.
1: I'm dying to know about genealogy because, you know, I love that stuff. Yes. You like can be connected to people. I want to mm-hmm. see how they like, can they do that? Or is it going to go in that direction with like database for crimes?
0: Yeah. See, I don't know. Cause, like, Okay, so one, yeah, there's the database, but you're only in the database if you've committed a crime, so I wonder if it's the same thing for Tiffany, like do they only have access to samples or DNA profiles of people that are already in the system? I'm assuming yes
1: again, I don't know. I want to ask her this like if like I committed a crime, but I wasn't caught, and then my cousin was in the system and they can link her to me. I wonder if that's how it works.
0: We're going to have to ask her because I think that there is some like, um, broad strokes terminology when it comes to like, we have a match on a profile. I think that potentially like based on race or ethnicity, you could get a hit, but it's not necessarily Mickey. Again, I'm probably not making a lot of sense. And I'm literally talking out of my pretend job. I think that we need her to define to us what it means when they say they have a match. Because I don't think that always necessarily means they found the bad guy. Well, let me uh, let me get Tiffany on and let's get rolling and let's go to school. Let's get our forensic DNA on today. Here we go. Hello? Hey, Tiffany. It's Mariah. Hi. I knew it was you. So okay. an easy way that we kind of lead into it is we always ask people to explain what you do in one to two sentences. So now
2: I examine evidence that is processed primarily by government labs or private laboratories that the government intends to use in a criminal proceeding just to make sure everything is, has been done correctly.
0: Okay. So I guess in broad strokes, like your profile, you're a DNA expert. What mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like Nikki and I were talking about that. And I historically usually get everybody's occupation wrong. <laughs> I told Nikki, I assume it's where you guys are extracting DNA from blood stains or bone marrow, saliva, skin cells, hair, that sort of thing.
2: Yes. So I started my career in a crime lab working for a government agency and we would test evidence to develop DNA profiles and we would make comparisons to those profiles, you know, for people of interest, mm-hmm. um, write reports about our findings and testify to those findings in court. Um, and so I did actual testing work in the early part of my career, what I would say probably the first half, the first seven and mm-hmm. a half to eight years. Or testimony and review of the work that's being done at the labs.
0: Okay. So we definitely have a lot of questions. Um, I think our first question that Nikki and I both were really curious about is, is DNA testing as specific as like a fingerprint analyst? Like how exact is it? Because from what I understand, like when you quote unquote get a match, there could be Like race or ethnicity that occurs to match it, but it may not be like a direct match to, like, let's say if Nikki committed a crime. Does that make any sense, or am I making no sense at all?
2: It does. So I'll explain it. I'm going to explain it in a way that makes sense to me. But, you know, the common conception of forensic DNA is that people think it's the gold standard. So we think about it in very absolute terms, like fingerprints. And I think that maybe. The origins of forensics and the need for them as an applied science to solve crime sort of lent themselves to some statements like that like matches that are absolute Mm -hmm. and very specific and I think as a community forensic science is trying to move away from that kind of language because we realize that not all fingerprints and not all data profiles are created equal so Mm -hmm. we have Sometimes very clear and very specific information that we're able to obtain. And I would liken this to a cheek swab from the inside of someone's cheek or a blood stain from a crime scene that's single source. And so we can see there's a lot of very clear information. There's a lot of very specific information. Um, and that's really what I consider to be the gold standard that single source DNA profile match to single source DNA profile match is very informative. And it tells us a great deal about the genetic information that's there and Mm -hmm. about people who could have left that information behind. But we also get poor quality fingerprints and we get poor quality DNA profiles that are less informative. So when a DNA profile is mixed, when we test steering wheels from rental cars, or from door handles where many, many people have touched those those surfaces and left mm-hmm. behind just a little bit of themselves at a time, um, that information is much less clear and it's much less specific and it's much harder to interpret. So just like a smudgy print or a, a very partial fingerprint, there might be some information there, but maybe not enough information to describe with specificity an individual person who could have left that behind and i think about this in terms of physical eyewitness descriptions of perpetrators sometimes you could get very clear information from someone who is being very close attention and you could get many many traits hair color eye color height weight skin color maybe unique markings or tattoos it depends on you know the more information with more specificity The better off a physical profile will be and the more, the more likely it will be that you could describe a perpetrator to the exclusion of all other people. And DNA profiles are like that. The single source DNA profile is like, you know, a 15 point physical description of a person with a lot of clear information. But then we get some DNA profiles that are very muddled and they don't, they're not very informative. So it's like a physical eyewitness description of
3: six foot tall black male
2: that's never going to describe someone to the exclusion of all other individuals and it's not informative it's not very informative Um, so really DNA profiles exist on this sliding scale you get some very good and clear information that's very informative and then you get some that are not very informative and there's a lot of gray area and they're difficult to interpret so that's where the problems arise when we have you know not the ideal profiles, um, when we have mixed profiles or partial profiles. Um, and just in general, we, even with the most clear information, I think now as a science and in science, we try not to use absolute language. We always leave open the possibility, however small, that the information we have could randomly match some untested person somewhere we really try hard not to say this is this person's DNA. You know, we say there's a lot of consistency. There's so many consistencies, you know, over the course of this profile that the chance we would expect somebody to also have all of these traits is very slim, very, very small, but we still acknowledge that possibility exists because we've not tested every person on the planet and people are born every day and people die every day. And we realize that our, our knowledge as scientists does update. And so we try not to speak in those absolute terms.
1: Um, So you have someone in custody. Can it be absolute if you match it to the sample that you have? We try not to. Um, We try not. We say the profiles match over this many traits. Usually right Mm -hmm. now
2: we're working 21, right? So what are the chances that someone would have all 21 of these traits that we observed in this evidence profile? Um, it's very small. It's infinitesimally small in some cases. We don't expect that that will happen, but we don't rule out that possibility. Um, you know, we just try to give that information to the people who are going
3: to use it. We oh, okay. say,
2: yeah, the information matches. The chance of a random match is very, very small. But, you know, we don't ever say this DNA came from this individual. Oh, okay. We that... try not to. There are still some laboratories that do that. But I think as a science, you know, even fingerprints, we're trying to move away from using that kind of language and we're trying to just provide the science, the data, mm-hmm. along with the mathematical estimation of how common or rare this event would be if we expected
3: it randomly, just by bad luck.
1: Man, it is very what? math and science. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. we're what? trying to find an objective
2: way to, to weight this, right? We don't want people to say, based on my training and experience as an expert, I think this DNA profile came from this person because everybody has a differing background. People have differing skills. People have different biases. So we're trying to find an objective way to estimate this with a that kind of removes the human element um and is kind of transparent in a way that we can show people how we arrived at this weight. You know, and it's not intrinsic just to me. It's not intrinsic to the person who's doing the doing the analysis.
0: I guess I'm just trying to like simplify this in my brain a little bit. Um, so you have like, I think did you call it first first degree testing? Where it's, so it would be like you have the suspect and then you have the sample from like the crime scene or wherever, and then you can build a profile based on like a saliva swab versus what was collected at the crime scene. But what happens if you don't have a suspect in hand? How do you guys build a profile? from just evidence alone? Is there like a database that you then take your information and run it against to see if there's matches?
3: Yeah.
2: So it has to be uh, the kind of information that's very clear or clear enough that we can put it into a database and it won't return 100 million random hits. The testing essentially doesn't change whether we have some suspect that's listed or if it doesn't. We proceed with the testing process in the exact same way. So we would just go and test it in the laboratory. The only difference is at the end, we'll have something to compare it to and say whether we think this is an inclusion or an exclusion, if we have a standard to compare. And if we don't, when we reach the end, if we have a suitable profile, we have the option if, if you're working for a government laboratory that is accredited and meets the standards that have been set forth by the FBI, then you can upload those profiles into the CODIS database. So CODIS stands for Combined DNA Indexing System. And it contains DNA profiles from crime scenes and from um, unidentified remains and from evidence that's been collected from crime scenes but has not been attributed to a perpetrator.
0: Okay. Nikki, you, you should ask Tiffany about the question that you were talking about, like if you committed,
1: yeah, a crime like but ancestry. You're
0: not, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, because yeah, I was wondering
1: because I do that. I love that ancestry, and I did the because um, my grandma had a um, grand or her dad. She had no clue who he was, and so it it's been like a mystery. So we did the DNA, um, you know, ancestry thing, and it linked us to a family member who then it turned out that was like her uncle and then blah 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 she gave us the whole story about you know who he was and this and that just through doing that ancestry dna thing and then um so is there like say i committed a crime no one knew it was me but my cousins in jail and her stuff is in the database could you mm-hmm link that to me somehow or no? So there
2: are people who can do that now. I don't think they have access to Ancestry unless they come with a search warrant Okay, to search that database. But there are other um, genealogy databases that some experts are now searching and finding perpetrators of crimes through the DNA of their relatives that have been uploaded into those databases. Okay. Pretty controversial because... I think that there were a lot of people that did that kind of testing and did not anticipate that their DNA would be used for that. And now they estimate that essentially every Caucasian on the planet is now database, essentially. We can find people from you know, their third or fourth cousins and um, they, they estimate that nearly every person, every Caucasian person has someone in that database that would allow them to be accessible to law enforcement through those searches
1: now. I find it really interesting because just how DNA matches you. I mean, it wasn't a crime situation, obviously. We were just trying to figure out who this guy was from 1916. But, like, you know, it's like really interesting how it works on a personal level. And I would assume that, like, people don't like ancestry where all of a sudden they had a kid that they had no clue about and then they pop up, you know, like, Well, yeah. I mean, this is
2: an interesting conversation to have given some of the legal developments in this country. And I wonder how people would feel knowing now that some people are going to be using these databases to assign parentage for the purposes of payments for child custody and child support. And, you know, I think they're using them also in places right now. I think they're using it in like Thailand and places where there's a lot of humanitarian work where the people go in and they, you know, under the, under the guise of, you know, humanitarian assistance and they make these women and children pregnant and then they leave and go back to wherever they're from. You know, they're trying to use the DNA, um, you know, through the genealogy to be able to track these people down that have committed these kind of crimes. So
1: that's wild. You know,
2: yeah. It has a lot of, it has far reaching implications and it's kind of a really interesting and exciting time to watch it as a lawyer and a scientist. But also, you know, you really understand that we have no idea how this is going to be used. And, um, you know, there's all of these other uses that are just now starting to present themselves that maybe not everybody is going to be as happy about, you yeah. know, catching murderers and rapists. You know, we can all sort of get behind that. But when they start knocking <laughs> on the doors for child support payments, you know, with this one night stand that you had at your business conference, I don't think people are going to feel the same
1: Yeah, about it. yeah because that's it's i because that's what i was wondering like and i know that there's like the hippas and all those like things but i feel i was telling mariah i'm like i don't understand that like so you've committed committed a crime like a horrible crime big or small but it to the person that it happened to is going to be big and it it doesn't matter if it's a small thing i think and say your dna is out there or something and because you can't access it because of privacy it's so crazy to me. Like I don't get it. To me, I don't yeah. understand it. But it's a lot. It's a lot.
2: And I mean, just the idea. So I mean, it sounds like you will have children, and I yeah. have children. It's essentially, mm-hmm. like this. Now our children are a database. You know, if my five year old son decides to turn to a life of crime, you know, <laughs> even if it's petty crime, you know, he's in a database because of. My uncle who tested his DNA and put it up into Ancestry. And you just wonder how, you know, where this is going to go. You know, they're buying and selling these databases. The Ancestry.com database, I mean, it's huge. And people, it's a reputable company. The people, they have lawyers there that try to protect that information. But essentially, that's a company that can be acquired.
3: Mm. And with
2: the DNA, you know, database that it owns is a commodity. And you wonder, you know how that's going to be used in the future, and you know what protections are in place. There's very little law, and there's very little oversight for this, because I think it's just so new. yeah, so it's definitely an interesting time to be in this field for sure.
1: Could they ever like like get it wrong, like say my cousin committed a crime, and then they thought it was me because I'm in this like database, Could they get it wrong? Like... There has been at least one instance
3: of that
2: and I want to try to um I would have to google it to find out the name of the individual that they identified. Part of this is is that we're working so it's a genealogist who's doing these searches on the biology side and the DNA side, but then they're handing off some of that information to law enforcement and what law enforcement does with it is completely out of control of the genealogist. Mm. So once they get a name and they start um Looking into it, it might be premature and, and that has happened. Let me see if I can find the name. Um, I'm gonna, I might have to look that up after we get off the phone and send it to you. But Perfect. There, there has been at least one person that was arrested wrongfully. They eventually came to the right person. But I think what it seemed like was maybe that law enforcement jumped the gun and arrested someone before they were able to do a, a regular comparison mm. of this person. DNA to the crime scene they covered it in 48 hours because this was one of the i think people's fears a common misconception is that you know we could have um people that are suspected for crimes you know from genealogy especially yeah. if you have people that are unskilled genealogists and they're not they don't know because a lot of these genealogists are self-taught yeah you know, we don't have college programs for this kind of thing or Um, We're starting to have them now for the forensic aspect, but a lot of these people, you know, learned about genealogy in the same way that you learned about the searches. They studied their own family because there there was a misidentification of parentage somewhere and they needed to locate relatives and sort of solve their own family puzzle. And then once they had done that, you know, they had exposure to it and they know how to search through these things, the records and the databases to identify people they could be related to.
1: How how new is this? Like how new is this whole DNA um, thing? So, using the genealogy databases
2: for um for crime purposes, this really started happening I think in 2018. So it's it's actually very new. Yeah. It's I think people recognize that it could be used for this. I think there was a period of time where people were wondering if they should be using it for for law enforcement purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more well-known groups that sort of does this kind of genealogy searching, they're called the DNA Doe Project. And so they have limited their searches to unidentified remains and, oh. and tracking them down and giving them their name back. So I think if people think that they're drug addicts, or the prostitutes, you know, I I do think there is some bias in law enforcement and and you know, in some areas of forensics where they don't maybe put as many resources into identification of those kind of people. Yeah. So they are kind of like the forgotten and this group really focuses on, you know, giving names to to these people. I like that. And yeah, I think it's really it's it's good work and it's humble work. There's a lot of weird jockeying right now in forensic genealogy for you know, who can solve the biggest case and who can get the most PR and who was the pioneer of this and um the people who are doing the DNA dough stuff are really not trying to do that, you know, they're just steadfastly working to identify, you know, all of these forgotten people and I think it's really humble, really good work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. What about, I have, uh, just this just popped into my head. What about twins, like identical twins? Do they have the same DNA? Um, Identical twins, for the purposes of standard DNA testing, they do.
2: But with the technology that we use to develop the profiles they use for genealogy, those are slightly different. So it's actual sequencing. So they're sequencing the genome, certain parts of it. And... I know that there have been people and there's um labs that specialize in sequencing until they find a difference in in an identical twin. So over time your DNA is changing and it's mutating. So even though the the DNA of the identical twins when they're born is exactly the same, if you would sequence them later on in life you might find some differences. And oh wow. That has come there have been some cases where that has come up where that's been important. There was one very famous one in Boston where one identical twin was accused of a rape crime and um, he pointed his finger at his twin brother. And so they needed to go to uh, a laboratory in Europe that specialized in sequencing testing to try to find a difference between the crime scene sample and one of the brothers.
1: That's, that's interesting how... Because I thought that you're identical and everything's identical. You know, like I didn't know that your DNA can change over time.
2: Certain parts, the parts that we focus on for forensic purposes are parts that stay consistent over a long period of time, but there are some rapidly mutating parts. We just don't use those. We want the ones that are going to stay the same over
0: time. Okay. So I was wondering, what is the best way of retrieving a DNA sample? Like in terms of blood or saliva or hair, semen, do they all produce the same information or is there one that's preferred over another?
2: They all produce the same information. For the testing that we do in the crime lab, we expect you to have the same DNA in all of those different um, sources. And the only difference is just the ease in collection. So we usually do a cheek swab now because we can get those skin cells off of the inside of the cheek pretty easy. It's pretty non-invasive um, and it still has a high quantity of DNA. Um, blood has a lot of DNA in it. It comes from the white blood cells that are part of your blood. Semen is very rich in DNA. Um, but because all of those cells are gonna have the exact same DNA profile, it's just easier for us to obtain usually a cheek swab.
0: And this is like a random question, but I've seen this on like a ton of true crime forums. I'm gonna ask it just so that we can get clarity on this one. But um, The question that I've always seen out there is kind of like, if you have hair and you donate it to locks of love and the recipient of the hair commits a crime and leaves hair at the crime scene, your DNA is now at that crime scene and you could be potentially connected?
2: Well, no. I mean, and the short answer to that is one thing that you should know about the DNA typing that we do when we test hairs, it's usually from the little skin cell tag that from the root of the hair. So we okay. usually don't get DNA from the shaft of the hair. There is some technology that can test that. Mitochondrial DNA testing, we can test on the shaft of the hair, but that's not specific from person to person. So you have the same okay. mitochondrial DNA profile as your mother and all your okay. maternal relatives. So, wow. yeah, so the, the more specific information Um, the gold standard stuff would come from the skin cells that are attached at the end, the follicular tag. Um, Hmm. and then if it doesn't have that, we could go on and do mitochondrial testing. There are some, um, types of testing that they're, that are being used now on shafts of hair, but just in general, anyone can do that with anything, not just your hair, right? Somebody could wear your ball cap. Somebody could wear your shoes. Somebody could wear your T-shirt and leave it behind at a crime scene, and that could implicate you. Um, And we have to understand this as as experts. We know that DNA transfers onto things, and that's why it has value for us in an investigation. But we also have to acknowledge that a person's DNA can get to a location without that person ever having been there. And, you know, it can be on an article of clothing that somebody brings to the crime scene. Yeah. We really have to assess the value of that information every time. You know, does this prove that the person committed the crime um, that's being alleged? And that's what I would say to any jury is that, you know, DNA alone, your DNA at a crime scene is never going to be enough. There needs to be other supporting evidence. And if everybody has done their job, they will find those links someone should find those links. But if they can't, your DNA at a crime scene alone is not enough to show that you committed a crime. Um, so, And that oftentimes, in many cases, is all people have. But because DNA is regarded as such strong evidence, it's very persuasive. And a lot of convictions result from that. Um, but me as an expert, I know that those things can happen. Some Someone could wear your locks of love ponytail or someone could yeah. wear your hat or someone could wear your flip-flops, and that could look very bad for you.
1: What if there's a lot of your blood at the scene, and not just like a little drop? What if there's like a lot?
2: I mean, it really just depends on, every case is different, every scenario is different, but there might be an explanation in the context of that case of why, why your blood might be in that location. Is it your own home? You know, I, <laughs> there's at least one person that leaves in this house a week. Um, You know, my kids, myself, I think about, you know, women in their own homes, and, you know, they have, we menstruate, like, you know,
3: yep. there's just, yep. it,
2: you have to really think critically and say, you know, in the context of this case, is this important information or could this be just looking bad um on its surface? And really it's just from everyday living in that location or driving that vehicle. I mean, a lot of somebody's blood in the trunk of a car is gonna be <laughs> pretty powerful. Um, but a lot of somebody's blood in their own like on their own mattress, you really gotta think, you know, is how, how much is a lot, you know? Well a I was suggest- thinking
1: like oh I was like thinking OJ. Like remember the OJ case where there was just it was like on the sidewalk and now I'm like I'm thinking in my head I know it was her blood, but I didn't know. I don't know if he had any blood there. Yeah, there was some of his blood at the scene, I believe. Um, and but I was like, how to do you explain that? Like, you know, like he's not, because it wasn't his home, it's out in front. Yeah, I mean, that's
2: it. In the context of that case, it might be very powerful, but you know, that's why every single case you have to kind of look and you have to ask these questions. And yeah. it's really hard. The attorneys have to bring these points up and make them clear. And it's very difficult for them sometimes to do that. They sometimes see DNA and they're like, oh no, it's over,
3: you know, it's Mm -hmm. just a nail in the
2: coffin. But no, you know, you have to put it in context and you have to really examine, you know, could this just, could this be from some innocent day-to-day activity or is this indicative of some crime? Yeah. That has to be addressed in every single case because every case is different.
1: How do you separate, like, what happens if like, there's a lot of blood from both people, the victim and the criminal. Can you tell and separate the two? If, there's, if it's just like a pool of it all together, can you tell who's so, is who?
2: No, a lot of times we, we can't. We would say that they couldn't be excluded. I have heard one of my colleagues explain this really well and then they use a smoothie metaphor. So if you put strawberries and blueberries into the blender and you hit the blend, you wouldn't really be able to tell which parts were strawberry and which parts were blueberry, but you can tell when you taste it that maybe there's strawberries in there, there's blueberries in there, mm-hmm. but you're not going to be able to separate them. Yeah, And that's kind of what DNA is like once it gets mixed up like that. We can we can say that they, they can't be excluded, but we can't say which parts come from which person. Sometimes we can based on the amounts. If there's a whole lot of strawberry and only a few blueberries, we might be able to say, oh yeah, definitely strawberry in here. Mm-hmm. Um, because it stands out above anything else. But um, you know, sometimes it's an even mix and it's just like hitting the blend on the on the smoothie.
0: That's a really good analogy. It. You know, a lot of the crime shows cause a lot of, I guess, false information that the general public believes about these professions. What do you think is the biggest misconception with DNA analysts? So
2: I think that the biggest misconception is sort of the the thing we talked about the sliding scale is that DNA is just widely regarded as very strong
3: all the time.
2: And sometimes it's not very strong. and Sometimes it's not very informative. And I think it's harder to make that clear in court because attorneys want to use these results in a way that supports their narrative and supports their ethical obligation and the story that they're trying to tell. And they're not necessarily concerned with making sure the evidence is fully understood in its most accurate light. So I think that all DNA is just widely regarded as very strong evidence the nail in the coffin, and that's not what it is. And then also, contextually, right? How that DNA got there, that needs to be considered every time. Is there an innocent explanation for this? Is the presence of this person's DNA at the crime scene indicative of some misdeed? Or could there be an innocent explanation and this just really looks bad? Um, and we know that DNA can transfer on items of clothing. We know people can transfer um, DNA from other people onto other items. So we really just have to be very careful with the information and the inferences we're drawing from the presence or absence of a person's DNA at a crime scene.
3: And how long does it take? Like, let's say you
0: swab my teeth. How long does it take for you to get like my profile markers back
2: we have rapid instrumentation now that can get a profile from a cheek swab in about 35 minutes okay. but the type of full testing that we do in the crime lab it usually takes i would say a full day to do it um if mm-hmm. you start in the morning you could be finished by the end of the day there are some parts that take several hours two or three hours uh, it's possible to do it and turn it around in one day but it's a concerted effort. And then everything we do, all the results need to be reviewed then by, by another qualified analyst So someone else to come through all of the documentation, all the notes, and make sure that all the procedures were followed and that we got results where we should have got results and all of our controls passed. So there's a stringent review process that takes place once the testing process is complete.
1: Have you had any memorable cases that you've helped solve? Um, one that
2: stands out to me, I did testing on a cold case. It was a Florida case. And it was an old woman who someone broke in and beat her to death. Oh. Um, yeah, it was hair that was in her hand. And we tested it 30 years later. And no. the, the DV profile from the follicular tag on the hair hit in the, in the database um, no. to a person. Now, did, was yeah. he already in jail? Um, he had a criminal history. I don't know if he was already in jail, but the victim's name, I'll never forget her name. Her name was Bertha Hemingall.
3: Oh, wow. And,
2: yeah. After the trial, um, her granddaughter sent me a message on LinkedIn to thank me for my work, which is always a strange Aww. thing, you know? But, you know, you don't realize the impact that you have on people doing this work because I can't say, I mean, I, I don't have any information about whether that person committed the crime or they didn't. And I don't know what all the other evidence looked like, but um, you know, going into it, you, you know, you realize that you're part of a of a big system that does have significant impact on people.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic, because that yes. had to be. I need conclusions. So if I yes. was left hanging for thirty years, just that sense of relief of finally knowing at least there's who this person was and there's an ending. That's fantastic that you can give that to cold cases and to people. Well,
2: I don't really... So I would say it's not my job. I didn't do that, right? Um, It had to be a skilled investigator. and, And the investigators who worked on this case were some of the best investigators I've ever had the pleasure to work with in my entire life. They had to go back to the evidence. And someone had to have the fortitude to preserve these hairs and label them properly. And someone had to make sure they were stored properly over time. And then these investigators went back to these old, old files and said, Oh, we've got these hairs now. We, we can test these for DNA. So really it was a skilled investigator. I gave them a, I gave them some data. I gave them a piece of information, but you know, investigators solve crime. Investigators, um, play a central role in achieving justice for victims and the prosecutors mm. do as well. And that's not really what I do, but you but know. But you have a part. Yeah, I you just do your small part and try to just realize that you don't know. I don't know the truth of what happened, but you know what information I can provide. I try to do it, you know, as best I can do.
1: I wish they had blood preserved from um, Jack the Ripper so we can fo- solve that mystery. <laughs> I know that's been so much speculation. I think there was something else to someone
2: claimed a few months ago or at the beginning part of the latter part of last year where they claimed again to have identified him oh really And there's a lot of cases i wish you know i wish that we could get closure for john benet ramsey you oh, know yeah. through DNA, and there's just yeah. some cases where you just wish you know you could get the answers and madeline mccann you know but these are things that we recognize you don't have dna and you don't have evidence really in every single case so
3: oh you know it's frustrating so much
2: Yeah, there's only so much the scientists can do. The investigators really have to put you in a position to give them information. Yeah.
1: And then how long can that... Like that was preserved for 30 years. How long could that potentially stay preserved for if it's properly preserved? I think
2: indefinitely. I think if it's properly preserved, you know, I've I've known people in cases that have been 40 years old. And I really... I mean, we we test DNA from dinosaurs. And oh, yeah, from, true. Yeah. Yeah, like really ancient remains and the Romanoff. And so I think, you know, if it's stored properly, then there'll be some type of testing that we can perform on it indefinitely.
1: So, in a fossil, going back to dinosaurs, I think it's so crazy that you can test fossils and stuff. So, there's a little part of DNA within that fossil that you can test to get information
2: well there's dna in our bones and any biological material there will be um it just depends on the different types of testing and how sensitive it is and you know whether it's designed for ancient dna something like that that's very old
3: mm-hmm.
2: so, and there's always the chance that it's it's so degraded and so far gone and too old that you won't get a, a sample that's always a possibility but yeah if things are preserved correctly then it increases the chance that you can Get something, and and our technology is advancing all the time. We have completely different tech than we had ten years ago, and we're more sensitive. We can get DNA from just even fractions of skin cells. You know, Same. some of the testing that we just a few skin cells, and we can get a standard DNA profile at the crime lab. So we're very, very sensitive. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because then you have yeah. to ask yourself, does this really play a role, or did somebody just walk by and swap
1: off some skin cells, and yeah. now here we are trying to track them down? But um,
2: yeah, but. The technology is advancing all the time.
1: And you can tell, like, um, I just, like, say at a scene, there's also animal, dog, cat, whatever blood. You can tell the difference between human blood and animal blood. Is is there, what's the difference between that?
2: Yeah, they're completely different. So they're structured different. So the DNA, there is DNA testing for those. And there are, we call them serological tests. So we could perform a test to determine what type of animal the blood is from um, and say whether it's dog blood or cat blood, things like that. But the kind of forensic testing that we do in the crime lab, it won't work on on anything that's not human or higher primate. Oh, okay. So if it's dog blood, we just won't get a DNA profile or if it's you know some other kind of animal.
1: What's a higher primate?
2: Um... Gorilla? I don't. I'm not exactly (laughs) sure how far down the price. Were you thinking
1: aliens, Nikki? (laughs) (laughs) Cloning? I don't know. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I would. No, I was thinking like, like, yeah, like gorillas or monkey or something. Like I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah, we have enough similarity to
2: some some primates that we would expect some information to be typed if we if we tried it on them.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. So no aliens yet. No, no aliens, <laughs> not that I know
2: of. I don't know what goes on at <laughs> out there at area, you know what is that area that we've got out there?
0: <laughs> area fifty one, <laughs> is, is that 51? it, Nikki? I was gonna say fifty four. So. <laughs> I know that's a studio. I not that's want to a dance club. <laughs> but I'm sure there's a lot of DNA <laughs> floating around
1: in there though too. Yeah, there's probably a lot. Yeah, I was going to say Area 54, but it's Studio 54. So yes, (laughs) my knowledge of aliens are not that great. So
0: kind of flip on us and have you talk a little bit about what happens when it goes to court, because I feel like DNA appears to be like widely accepted. It's like a definitive in the public eye. So how do you present that in a way that isn't going to be I don't know, bias, like I feel like it would be difficult to manage the jury and making sure that they understand the science because it really does seem complicated.
2: Um, It is. And it's, I think this is the area, it's one of the areas that's ripe for bias, right? Everybody, every human has got some kind of bias whether it's conscious or unconscious, because of their own lived experience. There's no way we can look at anything really objectively and not through the lens of our own experience. And so communication is a really personal thing. The words that you're choosing to describe this and the light that you cast in, it's extremely important in court. And it's a very difficult area to try to control and regulate because... We never know going into court what a lawyer is going to ask us, what questions are going to be posed. And so I think it takes a concerted effort. And I see in testimony that oftentimes forensic DNA analysts are perfectly fine with the evidence being presented in the strongest light and in the most certain terms because they don't get as much challenge or as much pushback. And, you know, the prosecutors sort of like it that way. Um, and, It's really something that I wish that more DNA experts would try to resist and try to present it with its strengths and its limitations so that we won't have miscarriages of justice based on some misconception in the presentation of the evidence in court. It's my primary focus, reporting and testimony and trying to get some kind of control measures in place to try to prevent people from skewing how the evidence is described in court and received by a jury. Do
1: you have to go to court a lot?
2: Um, So I haven't in the last couple of years, but it's ramping up very quickly. So a lot of what I do is listening to experts and how they describe the evidence and making sure they don't describe it inaccurately. They don't overstate it. Um, and so you really can only do that if you're there and they can see you and they know. Um, the thing about expertise is that in a courtroom, oftentimes the DNA expert knows that they know more about their subject matter field than anyone else sitting in the room. And it emboldens people to say things uh, for a lot of different reasons. But they know that no one can call that out unless there's another expert in the room. And so I think that's a really, really super important thing for lawyers to know is that you got to make sure that these experts are staying in their lane, you know, and within the bounds of good science and they're not trying to overstep to support one side or the other.
1: Is this something that you've always wanted to do, like growing up, like DNA stuff or what, no, what got you into it. it?
2: Um, So I went to college. I, I've always been strong in biology. Okay. So I... I entered college as a biology major and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I came out. I figured I would work in a hospital lab testing specimens or something. But then I want to say my junior year, I was watching a lot of crime shows. So there's a show (laughs) called Forensic Files. Yes. The first one. Uh Um, And I watched hours and hours and hours of that. And I just decided that I wanted to be a forensic scientist, and that was what did it for me. I'm one of those people that was drawn to the field by one of these TV shows.
1: <laughs> it seems like a lot of people had a show, they liked CSI or whatever it is that kind of pushed them in that direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just was... If it's interesting enough for me to be interested in it, watching hours and hours and hours of it on my you know, sorority couch... Then maybe I can handle working in that field for 30 years, 40 years, yeah. and still find it interesting every single day. And I do. I, I've never regretted this decision to be in forensics. It's very hard. And there's a lot of ugly and there's a lot of stress because it's very serious work, but it's interesting every single day, every single time. And, you know, I have never regretted this decision, not a single day.
1: Yeah. And blood doesn't obviously gross you out. I'm assuming but you're not dealing gallons of it. I'm thinking
2: no, I've been to crime scenes where there have been gallons of blood and oh. you know certain things about going to crime scenes that I liked and that certain things I didn't like um but i've never I didn't ever have to go and see anyone that was like significantly decomposed or you know yeah. I didn't see anything really horrific, and I'm thankful for that all the time But I never really saw anything that scarred me so deeply, but um.
0: So how do you, Tiffany, how do you handle the stress of your job? And just, you know, the things that you've seen and the pressures, that's got to be hard to separate you, like your mom, your wife, how do you, you just compartmentalize? Um, no, sometimes it's not, it
2: doesn't work out in a very clean way. Like I, I have a hard time getting my kids involved in extracurricular activities because I don't trust anyone. And I know that's, Kind of selfish and I'm trying to work through that. My daughter is seven. I think she would love to be in gymnastics mm-hmm. or some kind yeah. of dance. Um, and I want to get my son, you know, lessons in golf, but I'm just really distrustful of people. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes it does rear its ugly head. Um, you know, there's obviously medication to help with some of the stress and the depression, but there's no real good strong answer sometimes i drink a glass of wine <laughs> um, and my husband's super supportive but you know i'm sure that there are times when i probably should speak to someone and there are some days where like something will happen or i'll read something that's really terrible in the news and i will have a disproportionate reaction to it because it's realer to me than to a lot of other people so it's not easy i'm, I'm still a work in progress i think in that area I try really hard. I've been doing it a long time. So
3: yeah,
2: some of the stuff you read it and you you see it over and over. And then every now and again, you realize what an impact it has on you. And you, you maybe didn't realize that you
3: were being affected. So, so strongly.
2: Yeah. It's, it's so interesting and I love it. And there are so many positive things about it, you know, that it outweighs the negative and otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it.
0: Well, I think we we'll won't take up too much more of your time because we definitely could keep, keep you talking. Um, so I think we're going to transition over into just some of our lighter, uh, lighter hearted questions that are just fun and silly. Uh, Nikki, okay. you want to kick it off with one of your favorite?
1: Um, yeah, I always like to ask people what what's something that you hoard?
2: Oh, my gosh, something that I hoard. Um
1: you have a lot of. <laughs> when I
2: go to a hotel and they bring me room service and they bring me those tiny bottles of Tabasco and like little tiny honeys and yeah. jam, I bring those home every time because I love meat and cheese. When I make charcuterie board,
0: I love putting that stuff out. Everyone's so impressed with my tiny bottle. Oh, I love it. That's a great tip for like upping your charcuterie game is to like have the little jars from the hotel. Okay, uh, here's a tough one. What song would be the perfect theme song for your job?
2: Theme song for my job? So I think all the time of The Who, you know, because it was the yeah. CSI theme song, you know, Who Are You? And so I think most forensic scientists, uh, you know, kind of equate that song with what we do.
3: How did we go? You're quick, quick draw. Quick Actually draw. have a theme song.
2: Yeah, we have a theme song in this field. <laughs> it's bad.
0: <laughs> let's let, let's we'll end it on this one tiffany what advice okay. would you give your 20 year old self if she would listen oh i would just
2: tell her to listen more and speak less um at this stage in my career i make a living saying things that people sometimes don't want to hear and so it's mm-hmm. really been an attribute to me that now it, it kind of suits me but sometimes And I think definitely when you're in the beginning stages of your career, you just need to keep your mouth shut and do your work. And the less people know about you, the better and just kind of put your head down and go, you know, and I have a tendency to just let whatever I'm thinking come out of my mouth. So I think in my younger (laughs) years, that that was not my my, uh, most beneficial attribute. I hadn't earned the right yet. I hadn't earned the right to do that. So you got to wait. (laughs) Mm hmm.
0: Well, this was so much fun, Tiffany, and we learned a lot and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and answer all of our random questions. Thank you for having me and
1: giving me the opportunity to speak.
3: Yeah, Yeah, it's awesome. Thank
1: you. That was fun. I had no no clue what DNA forensics really does, but I'm into it now. I like it. Yeah, it's okay. It's not bad. (laughs) I've never, never regretted it. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you so much. Thank you. The rest of your Friday and your weekend and we'll talk to you all right have a good weekend all right you too bye-bye. bye-bye bye
0: so multi a lot of science lots of levels
1: right lots a lot levels. of science
0: it's not as like cut and dry
1: no I thought that you'd be able to identify someone like that and it would be used more. Like in it'd be used more like that. I thought that would be like your main. This is the person like the main evidence. Like a direct link. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the, the yeah, like the main evidence. I think it's interesting how it's not. Well,
0: I think it's really interesting how she. Yeah, I think that it was like really thought provoking and interesting that she said you have to look at it like objectively, like even though your DNA is there, like is does it make sense that it was there? You know, like you have, you know, and I think. It, like she said, it would be very easy to be like, Well, his blood was there, so he was there, and you know, he committed it. You know, like I, yeah, it would be hard to be impartial, I guess, because you do think, Well, the blood was there, or
1: this was there, or whatever. You know, well, she's fun, she's fantastic. I like that, and I wanted to ask her about her being a lawyer. What's up with that? So she's that on top of it,
0: yeah. I think so. I think she's kind of like she's mentioned in the beginning, I think she now has. Um, taking herself kind of out of the crime lab and she just works strictly in the courts. So like she said, like making sure the DNA experts are speaking correctly and speaking within the scope of the evidence. She was delightful, delightful and wonderful. And I enjoyed her company a lot. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I think the whole DNA in a whole is just fascinating.
1: Well, then I was thinking about when we're talking about like DNA and cloning, I'm like, Is that rumor true about Walt Disney? Remember how they say he's like on ice?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, by all means, let's bring him back. That I can support. All right. Well, till next time. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it. You can send us an email to hello at Body to Burial
1: If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to.
0: Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.